what actually is the relationship between scientific knowledge that is clearly a human social construction and the concept of truth independent of subjective and social knowledge. And when you combine the two together, what exactly is scientific knowledge, the method, the knowledge it generates, how does it relate to social and subject? What is mind and matter? We don't have a model of understanding and get a grip, to use my friend John Verricki, an optimal grip on these concepts so that we can actually know what we're talking about in a deep and cumulative way. Hello and welcome to Planet Critical, the podcast for a world in crisis. My name is Rachel Donald. I'm a lecturer, a climate corruption reporter, and your host. Every week I interview experts who are battling to save our planet. My guests are scientists, politicians, academics, journalists, and activists. They explain the complexities of the energy, economic, and political crises that we face today, revealing what's really going on and what they think needs to be done. This is a critical time for our planet. It demands critical thinking. Go to planetcritical.com to learn more and subscribe. My guest this week was Greg Henriques. Greg is a professor in psychology at James Madison University and a core faculty member in their combined integrated clinical and school psychology doctoral program. Greg studies what's wrong with psychology, the field of psychology, our understanding of our own psychology, and applies that to the knowledge that we have about the world in order to close the enlightenment gap. He joined me to explain his theory about how to understand the world, where we've come from, where we're going, how to understand our own psychology and how to understand our relationship with knowledge. Greg has been working on this theory for over 20 years and he's publishing his latest version of that theory in his forthcoming book, A New Synthesis for Solving the Problem of Psychology, Addressing the Enlightenment Gap. In the book and in this interview, Greg explains we need a second enlightenment in order to repair our relationship with ourselves, with the world, with one another, and with knowledge in order to combat the climate crisis, the mental health crisis, the energy crisis, all of the crises that are flooding our modern world. I hope you all enjoy the episode. If you do, please share it far and wide. If you're loving the show, support Planet Critical with a paid subscription at planetcritical.com. By signing up, you'll also get access to the weekly article I write inspired by each interview. Thank you to everyone who has signed up and is supporting the project. I'm a vehement believer in ad-free and open access content, so Planet Critical wouldn't exist without the direct support of the amazing community. Thank you so much to all of you who keep the project going every week. Greg, thank you so much for joining me on Planet Critical. It is such an honor to have you on the show. Yeah, it's lovely to be here. I really appreciate the offer. Well, I'm excited to get into uh, your work on crossing the enlightenment gap, which is what John said when he platformed you on uh, his episode. Uh, but before we do that, could you give your background for listeners, um, your career in psychology and as an academic, and then we'll work up to your most recent book? Lovely. Yeah, so uh, I'm a professor of psychology at James Madison University, um, where I teach in a combined clinical and school program, basically train people to become psychological doctors uh, in schools or in hospitals and uh, counseling centers. I've been there since 2003. Um, I am a clinical psychologist, so that's how I was trained. Um, what happened to me as I got training, I, I thought I would be sort of on the science side, and indeed I am on the science side of the equation, but not as I originally learned what science was. Um, and uh, so then I came into the therapy setting, wanting to apply empirical science methods to the psychotherapy practice. Um, in particular, I was leaning towards what are called cognitive and behavioral kind of approaches. Um, I then basically learned, there's a lot of bullshit there, 
<laughs> Sorry. Um, but uh, um, and it's sort of there are big questions that I wanted to ground my practice. Essentially, I wanted to be somebody who practices grounded in human psychological science. Um, and then to just, so actually, yeah, actually let me let me let me just stop you there and let, let's talk about the bullshit for a second. Um, because these are, are we talking about sort of treatments for people like CBT and DBT and these kinds of behavioral therapies? What do you find to be bullshit about them? Because from what I understand, they are sort of the therapies that have the highest success rate at alleviating symptoms for people with personality disorders, for example. Right. Well, that the idea that they do better than other bona fide treatments is essentially, in my opinion, essentially BS. Right. So it's not that they do better. The much better way of framing it is that there are some kinds of therapeutic relationships that do better. Um, mm -hmm. So that particular ingredient of the therapeutic relationship that is far more predictive of outcome than whether or not you say you apply a particular brand to the therapy process. Okay. Right. So the okay. brand that people are trying to promote, CBT, DBT, ACE, um, and on other EFT, all of these brands actually get the same outcome. Hmm. And certainly when you look for it in relationship to the base, you just control for some basic issues like, uh, or you look at the quality of the relationship and what are called, I'm the president of a society for the psychotherapy integration. Uh, and my theme is toward a common core. So we gotta get clear about what the common core of psychotherapy is. And one thing we definitely know it's not is matching treatments to disorders. Right. That's not, that's definitely not the common core of psychotherapy at all. Well, why not? Given um, if I were to go to my doctor and I had a physical ailment, um, I would be prescribed treatment based on what that ailment is. So why is it not the same for the mind? <laughs> Great question. Um, <laughs> Because when we are diagnosing you uh, as a medical doctor, I'm applying a particular model of biophysiological functioning. Mm -hmm. he, that doctor, she can diagnose the malfunction or the offset element and then apply a particular kind of intervention that leverages that towards treatment. Mm. Okay? Mental behavioral processes and the human mindedness processes are actually quite different. And the kinds of things that are available to us, okay, through psychotherapy are not fixing broken biology. I mean, mm -hmm. I'm a psychotherapist. I engage in conversation. Mm -hmm. uh, so the primary issue is, that I, I say, uh, what, what's actually happening is I'm engaging your ego, mm -hmm. your self-conscious system. I'm helping you learn how to relate to your feeling system, to your mm -hmm. past, to your current relationships and to your future relationships. Mm -hmm. And it's the process by which you're either adapting adaptively to those mm -hmm. situations or maladaptively. Mm -hmm. And certainly we can then lens on certain maladaptive processes. And I can, you and I could dialogue together about what those maladaptive processes are. And I could both educate you about them and relate to you in a particular way that would hopefully untangle them and afford new growth. But the diagnosis in the DSM which is a medical profession, tries to jam the medical model of biological malfunctions into human mindedness. Mm -hmm. And that's a mistake. 
<laughs> that's a fundamental category error. Um, yeah. So we're trying to apply medicine, which is appropriate at the biophysiological level, to human mindedness, which is a totally different dimension of existence. And you're using the wrong categories in the like. But isn't now? I'm a complete layman on this, so please excuse if I am asking silly questions. You know, um, beautiful. <laughs> but I, I'll just offer. Of course, I'm an mm -hmm. academic. There are a lot of caveats that I would specify. Sure. But I'm absolutely fine with the assertions that I've made so far in general. Okay. So I completely agree. like the DSM manual. For anybody who doesn't know it, it is sort of the, the diagnostic manual for diagnosing people with um, sort of mental health problems, disorders, or whatever. And it's come under a lot of flack over the years. We everybody's minus um, <laughs> Yes, but from what I understand about um, how trauma uh, can sometimes appear in people's lives, there is a bio. Uh, what was it? A biophysical or the, what was it that you said? A bi uh, okay, so. So, biophysical yes. malfunction reaction. as a malfunction. disease well malfunction is when there's a basic architecture a biophysiological architecture think your heart attack it's shaped by natural selection to perform particular kinds of functions okay it's very complicated that system can break when it breaks you have cardiac arrest or whatever mm -hmm. and then you mm -hmm. want to fix that because the failure to fix that is all sorts of trouble um so when we look at the System of mindedness is the way I would characterize it. Okay. Um, certainly there are things that can go wrong. I mean, I, my grandfather had Alzheimer's disease, and that's exactly what that was, is the inability of that system to manage. And there are lots of particular kinds of neurocognitive malfunctions mm -hmm. that can happen. Psychotherapy is not a treatment for neurocognitive malfunction. Mm -hmm. It's a treatment for maladaptive behavioral investment patterns. Mm-hmm what it's for. And so you can, and so that's a, just a fundamentally different category in relationship to the ways in, uh, of the of problem. That's the, that's the key to understand that maladaptive behaviors are a different, um, maladaptive mindedness engagement is a different kind of problem than a biological disease. Okay. Just one last point on this, because I'm aware we're very much going down my my personal interest route rather than planet critical here. Yeah, my <laughs> uh, certainly my interest too, so I don't mind at all. This is, these are exactly the kinds of questions that I uh, came into the profession with in certain frames. So go ahead. I think, I mean, from what I understand, there is a relationship between um, trauma and these maladaptive behaviors and also um, your biology. So the parasympathetic nervous system, like that's sort of where like PTSD gets trapped in a sense. That was kind of my understanding of how trauma can sometimes arise. So surely focusing not just on sort of maladaptive behaviors, but also on the biophysical level of how these uh, biological processes, processes can sometimes get hijacked, I suppose, by a consciousness that lives in the past and the present and the future all the time. Is that not equally helpful in the way that we diagnose medical disorders on a biological level and give prescribed treatments? Well, uh, okay. Yeah, absolutely. So, so um, I am, my mindedness sits inside my livingness. Right. <laughs> and, and to the extent that it's both requiring my livingness uh, and to the extent that I am damaged biologically, that influences my mindedness and my mindedness mm. speaks back on all of that. Mm. To the extent that I learn something very dramatic through, a, for example, a trauma, Okay, that trauma can impact my biolog biophysiological structure and my mindedness structures in a very, very dramatic way. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. 
understanding the way trauma influences both our biological physio structure and our mindedness structure and not understanding that relation, which is unbelievably tight and complicated, okay, mm -hmm. is crucial. All I'm saying is that with the body and mindedness structures are responding in a particular way, there are times in which you want to bring a biological malfunction lens to the system, and there are times that you don't. If you're engaged in psychotherapy, I don't know what biological malfunctions you're actually able to fix through a psychosocial process. Now, can you help okay. biological malfunctions? They're there. For example, we know if we just say for a second somebody has schizophrenia and we'll, uh, you know, somebody's, and, and we can argue that schizophrenia, I would certainly argue, a lot of evidence that that's a neurobiological malfunction, at least involved in that. Okay. Mm -hmm. Now, I can help somebody that's in the process of that, that kind of structure through the ways in which I'm going to cultivate my relationship with them, precisely because there's all these iterative feedback loops between various systems. Okay. So, for example, you know, just think about, hey, you're really hungry. I can give you food. When does a hunger become a malfunction and when does it become the necessary structure that feeds the system? These are very, very complicated. No, there are lines you can draw in relation. Okay. But the bottom line is, is that we, in the world of psychotherapy, you do not want to treat the world of psychotherapy in the same kind of categories if you treat biomedicine. Unfortunately, our institutions are set up so that you have to do that, essentially. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Meaning that psychiatry is a branch of medicine. Psychiatry puts out the DSM. And psychiatry has to treat biomedical conditions because it's a medical discipline. That's just mm -hmm. the institutional structure. So we've been handed this particular set of categories to try to force square pegs into round holes. Mm -hmm. And part of my entire book, if you want to, you know, is, is why are we broken with regards to our categories and grammar for understanding the world? I'm so and glad. Broken with regards to our grammar for understanding the world. I'm so glad that you landed here because I was wondering how we were going to manage to swing it back at one point. But yes, absolutely, because this is this is definitely a theme that comes up on the show. Um, the fact that academia and science has been sort of increasingly siloed and atomized, that we have no sort of holistic picture for individual fields, let alone what's actually going on in the, the world, the planetary system, the human system, and obviously, of course, our mind systems, our biological systems, like everything is quite fractured. Um. What damage is that doing, would you say, in the you know, in the field of psychology? In the thing that you sent me about your book, it said, you know, understanding the problem of psychology and where to go. Would you say that this is the main problem of psychology today, the fact that everything has been unhelpfully categorized? Right. I mean, I actually argue this is this main problem in knowledge. Right. Okay. So there's a fundamental, um, we lack a basic grip on our understanding of the work. Uh, and there's a reason for that. It has a lot to do with, you know, how modern empirical natural science, I'll just say science, but it is important to give those qualifiers, how that evolved uh, and what that did and the kind of knowledge that gave us and then from mm. Galileo to Newton to Einstein. Okay. That gave us a particular kind of grounding and knowledge. Very, very powerful, beautiful knowledge. Mm. Okay. But the nature of that knowledge was never able. So what happened is the following. Um, before science, we just basically had a dual world Christian system, at least in Europe. Mm -hmm. Okay. 
You had, the, you had the physical world down here that was basically God's clockwork. And then God sat up here and God granted us a soul spirit structure. And that magic enabled us to live in the world. And the rest of the world was unfolding by God's clockwork. Natural philosophy was then trying to figure out God's clockwork. And then God managed it. And when you died, you hung out with him. That's the dual world structure, right? Well, that structure breaks ultimately as science, as natural philosophy evolves into science and grabs a hold of physics and all sorts of other philosophical problems that basically says, no, it's just a material world. It's one world, not, not another world. Okay, at least from a certainly from a conservative scientific perspective, not, you can't make sense out of how another world would be. Mm -hmm. But as we said, there was a this one world, then that created all sorts of problems for how things other than just matter behaved in the world. Okay, like life mm -hmm. and animals to extent. And then most notably, the difficulty of explaining this conversation. Yeah. Okay. Let me explain the physics. Can we explain this conversation through physics? Virtually everyone said probably not <laughs> in many ways, the early folks. But eventually, as physics got really dominant, we said, well, this is this physical determinist stuff is really this one world is physical determinism. Okay. But then there's this whole mental world. How do we make the mental connect to the physical? We never learn. Okay. Mm -hmm. How do we know we never learn? My discipline. Psychology. We can see now with a lot of clarity how physics goes rise to chemistry, goes rise to biology. That's pretty consistent, okay? Mm -hmm. But we don't know how to get from biology to psycho. Hmm, okay. How do I know that? Because nobody knows what psychology means. It's true. <laughs> nobody knows what psychology means. Is this, is this the, the question around consciousness? Or is this what we're talking about? How is it that you and I are sitting here as people that have a, a sense of self-identity and having this conversation and making well, sort of mental maps of our own existence? Lovely. You're actually now bringing all sorts of concepts to bear on this domain. Consciousness, self, identity, cognition. Mm -hmm. And then we have all of these different terms. And it's very much the way physics was before Newton. Before Newton, there were all these different terms for mm -hmm. matter, and there were and there was there were the heavens and the earth, and there was all of these different. It was pre-paradigmatic, meaning there was no paradigm. Right. Newton came along and said, "You know, the stuff that's happening here is the stuff that's happening there, and it's all managed by a matter in motion, gravitational structure, etc." Okay, so Newton comes along and gives us a paradigm, an overarching model for physics. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. There's no paradigm for psychology. Yeah. But there surely, surely there is in other parts of the world. I suppose if you think of like Eastern traditions and their sort of like dialectical approach, you know, the, the Tao and one is not one's thoughts. And I don't know, I'm run, run out of things that I know about now. <laughs> so there's certainly, there, there are schools. When we say paradigm, I'm using the, the couple of meanings of this term. Okay. Paradigm inside of science, it's a Thomas from a guy by the name of Thomas Kuhn. He's a famous philosopher. Mm. Um, inside of science, what Thomas Kuhn usually means to remember, he's like, it's really applied inside of science. And it's like the scientists can get together and have consensus of how to do normal science within this model. And notice I'm saying science. Okay. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, so paradigm refers to, and Newtonian paradigm is the classic example, meaning that for 200 years after Newton, that root game is like, that guy really figured st- <laughs> that calculus stuff and the way he mops the, the gravitation, <laughs> that shit works. <laughs> uh, and it does work up until the 20th century when we get quantum mechanics, general relativity, and other the modern physics breaks Newton's paradigm. But for mm. 200 years, inside science, we had a model for matter and motion. Okay. Um, and so that's what I mean. Paradigm can also mean a school of thought, a way of thinking about the world, what I would call a justification system. So there are mm-hmm. absolutely schools of thought, I mean, Freudian schools of thought, behavioral within psychology. And then you go, of course, there's Eastern tradition. Okay. But what we know happened is within science. That's why I say I want to, I'm sitting inside of science. I'm not on the Eastern side of this equation. Okay. But when you sit within the paradigm of science, i.e. Mm-hmm. physics and the chemistry and then into biology, and you ask, is there a paradigm for psychology? Everyone knows the answer is no. It's super well documented. Can I can I ask a um, really meta question? Sure. Does that not, but even sort of searching for that question or searching for that paradigm, does that not fall under the paradigm of the Enlightenment where we expect to be able to find a model to explain everything, whereas perhaps some part of life or existence or the world is inexplicable and accepting that uncertainty and that unknowability would foster a far better relationship with one another and with our own existence? Lovely questions. Lovely questions. So if we sit with inside the the desire of the enlightenment and certainly the desire of reason, it is to try to get a coherent understanding of the world as far as possible. Absolutely. So the enlightenment wants to bring reason to bear and create a coherent map. It fails, clearly, to develop a coherent map. The mind-body problem is ubiquitous and there are six million ways to look at it. The conclusion is there's no way to solve it. Mm. Um, That's the enlightenment gap, or at least half of it. I tie two problems together to call an enlightenment gap. But one is crystal clear. Hey, how do we understand matter and mind? And the answer is, huh, we don't. Then the question is, well, can we in a way that is coherent? My discipline, psychology, essentially decided after the first 50 to 100 years of it, said no. What it did was that what you can do is you can apply the methods of science. We become a science, not because we know what we're talking about, but because we apply the methods of science. Mm -hmm. Okay. Let me give an example of the difference. Biology. What is biology? Everyone that knows much about biology, it's the science of life. What do you mean by life? Well, I mean like cells and stuff. Living things. Living things. What is psychology about? Well, it's kind of about the mind or mental process, but we can't really study that because the science doesn't really know. So what we do is we carve out behavior and science can study behavior and then infer mental process. Okay. Yeah. Got it. Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Then we study behavior and then we build models for studying behavior and infer mental process and build all of these research programs so you can learn the latest research from psychology says, based on this slice of research, we've made connections between these variables and now, hey, woohoo, you know, this is our, that's our, and so it's a stacking 
of connections between variables that are operationalized by the methods of behavioral science that then find general patterns of behavioral relations mm -hmm. defined by the op operational variables of your research. So it works. Mm -hmm. Okay. So okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And this fits nicely into sort of what we understand about the institution of academia today, the fact that everything everything needs to be quantified in order to be measured and also in order to measure well, individual success. Well, it's yeah. every quantified, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So you said that that is one half of the enlightenment gap, the mind and matter and the fact that we can't really explain them or explain their relationship. What's the other half? So the other half is exactly what do we mean by scientific knowledge? And then what is scientific knowledge? What's the truth value of scientific knowledge on the one hand? And how does that relate to subjective and social knowledge on the other? Uh-huh. Okay. So where do you see this? If you, if you study an, science at all, you'll know that the modernist view of science, the Enlightenment modern natural science view is, hey, we can apply the methods of science and we'll gain transcendent truths about the world that are independent of any subjective or social group and its belief. That's mm -hmm. the essential uh, assertion of science. It yields these independent truths that are not dependent upon the subject or the social group that believes. Okay. Postmodern, if you, once you get postmodern, at least in philosophy, the te more technical terms, post-structural, but we'll just use basic terms. Postmodern says, all those claims you made about science they sit inside a socio-cultural history. And they're just a kind of justification like virtually anything else in many ways. Mm -hmm. And the special status that you're going to grant science, especially to give an authority and to make it as an authority that makes judgments over people is deeply problematic. Mm -hmm. And lo and behold, it tends to advance white cisgendered Christian men, by the way. And it's embedded then in a whole socio-political power structure. So it's really a system of justification just like any other or somewhat. So that's the postmodern critique. And then you get a battle between the modernists, at least some section of modern, especially if we go down to physics, you're saying, what are you saying? We're just bullshitting this? <laughs> no and yes and okay. So what actually is the relationship between scientific knowledge that is clearly a human social construction and the concept of truth independent of subjective and social knowledge? Hmm. That's a very complicated question. We don't really have crystal clear answers in relationship to that question either. And when you combine the two together, what exactly is scientific knowledge, the method, the knowledge it generates? How does it relate to social and subject? What is mind and matter? Now I want to come back to my discipline that says, oh, hey, I'm the science of mind. What does that mean? Actually, don't know because we don't. Uh, we don't have a model of understanding and get a grip, to use my friend John Verricki, an optimal grip on these concepts so that we can actually know what we're talking about in a deep and cumulative way. Is the relationship between knowledge and subject then similar to the relationship between matter and mind? There are certainly some relations, absolutely, in the sense that people think about knowledge as being objective, matter is kind of objective, science mind seems to be kind of subjective. It's in your head. It's just here. It's not out here. Mm -hmm. You can make some associations associated with that. But they're definitely different issues. So is the whole premise then that 
we're going to have to find new languages, new grammars, new frameworks, new models and for understanding the relationship between these things or understanding these things in and of themselves. Because if we do all live with a mind that is inherently subjective and interprets the objective quote-unquote world, then essentially th there's something very alienating about that. Like nobody shares the same world as another person. And it's part of understanding that isolation, but at, at once inclusion within a greater whole that we need to get at in order to, I don't know, start to build that relationship between these seemingly disparate things? Um, sort of. Uh, at least, especially in the first part, we definitely need to mm. change our gram. Mm. Okay. So then what you followed is you were trying to jam the grammar. You were holding on to the grammar. Mm -hmm. uh, and so the second part is like, mm, the grammar changes when you know how to look properly. Go on then. So I'll just, so instead of being handed this idea that there's matter and objective stuff in the world, and then there's mind and there's subjective stuff in the world, okay, we need to change our grammar. Mm -hmm. Think about the world as an unfolding wave of yep. behavior and observers. It's an unfolding wave of behavior and observer. Okay. This mm -hmm. wave starts, we can say, you know, starts at the Big Bang. And that's the, that's at that phase, it's an energy information implicate order. Okay. Energy what? information that. implicate order. Energy information implicate order. That sounds weird, but actually that's what physics has discovered. This is what blew up Newton. Okay. okay. Uh, both we go to, to Einstein's general relativity, which gives rise to the Big Bang notion. And that's been confirmed in my estimation of a wide variety of different ways. And even more dramatically confirms what quantum mechanics or technically quantum field theory. Quantum field theory is all that stuff that exists beneath the atom, basically, at the subatomic level. And the world is totally different at the subatomic level. It's not, it's not a local space-time objects bouncing into each other world. How to describe it is there's a lot of different ways. I describe that world as an energy information implicate order. It's just my pointer to the great insights of modern physics that blew up Newton mm -hmm. and show that underneath the normal space-time stuff is something very, very different. Mm -hmm. Okay, Everyone, and certainly physics, all physicists knows this, but everyone in our world outside of physics should know that the world went from matter in motion, really, to an energy information field. That's really the ground upon which... Uh, our understanding is. So our, uh, in terms of our metaphysics, metaphysics meaning what's our, with our grammar, concepts and categories, it's not matter, it's energy information. Out of that comes, okay, and we get particles into atoms, into molecules, and then across scale, things like planets and, and solar systems. And that gives rise to the matter object dimension of complexity. That's what Newton got right. Matter, object, dimension of complexity. Okay. Okay. So that's one, so that's two steps now. So we've gone, we dropped, it's not just matter versus mind, it's matter. Underneath that, there's energy. Mm. All that energy for now. And matter. Okay. Then what happens, and they didn't know this when the Enlightenment started, but Darwin comes along, and then genetics and cell theory all work together, say out of matter, at least on planet Earth, came life. Mm -hmm. Okay. Life. Biology is a fundamentally, 
according from my vantage point, a fundamentally different kind of behavior, okay, than matter and motion. It's a totally, and I can explain what I mean by fundamentally different, okay? Mm -hmm. I don't mean that there's some magic in it, but there's a fundamental transformation of its organization so that it then behaves differently. Yeah. have to understand that. Yeah. And then, so then that gives rise to things like cells and plants, fungi, okay? Mm -hmm. Then about 500, and this happened about 4 billion years ago, then about 550 million years ago, there was a thing called the Cambrian explosion. What happened there, plants started getting up and walking around. <laughs> They're animal, mm. okay? According to my frame, we want to call these minded animals, okay? Minded or mindedness is the property of being an animal that has a sensory motor looping system that allows it to get up and walk around. Okay. Okay. And then we see the explosion of animals from things like crabs all the way up to whales and chimpanzees and wolves. Okay. Over the last 500 million years. Mm -hmm. Then about two, 250,000 years ago, and certainly by 50,000 years ago, we see yet another emergence, a particular mm -hmm. primate started turning into persons, okay? How did they do that? They do what we're doing. They get together and they talk in propositions and question answer justifications. And that gave rise to a whole nother dimension of the culture person plane of existence. Okay. okay. So let's go back and say it's energy information, it's matter object, it's living organism, it's minded animal and culture person. Mm -hmm. okay. So if we have that frame, that grammar, the entire mapping starts to change quite dramatically. Yeah, I suppose, why, how could we explain that some things remain matter in a world where we have culture-minded people as well? Can you say that again? I'm not sure if I, like, like, like why would a rock stay a rock? Yeah, yeah, why do we still have rocks? <laughs> Um, I, I think that the, the default explanation is to say what you have to bring explanations to why did life come, not why did rocks stay the same? Mm -hmm. It's, it's the fact that there's all of this different difference that you need explanations for the fact that the moon will be the moon tomorrow. That's a, that's a default it, to ask the question, why will the moon not turn into a rocket ship? Well, I don't know. It was, and that's kind of a, the, so uh, uh, in terms of logic and explanation, you really need to explain things that are getting more complicated or are changing. If we go to like Newton, if everything's the same, that's the default. That's inertia. Okay. Mm -hmm. Which the things that change and in particular things that this whole issue, especially if you know what entropy is, is like, why are things getting more complex? Yeah. Okay. That's the really, an, that's the scientific explanation we need to bring to bear to understand. So the question is, not why did the rest of the world stay the same. It's like, why did certain molecules get together and ultimately generate cells? That's a, mm -hmm. that's a, that's a mystery of life. How does walking around plants, animals get experience in their heads through brains? That's a great question. How the heck did primates get together and start talking? That's a great question. You said that the world is an unfolding wave of behavior and observers 
and that this is the way in which we can change the grammar of thinking about things as subjective and objective. How does one consider one's own individuality um, or one's own selfhood? Or is the idea to no longer be considering these things at all when you use the framework of understanding the evolution of being in this world from matter to culture-minded person? Lovely. Um, yeah, so, you know, the, the model that I'm proposing, the new grammar that I'm proposing is called you talk, okay? Um, and it's a playoff words, but it's it's unified theory of knowledge. Okay, and that's what it's. Um, and so it's a new map to give us a new grammar for organizing our knowledge systems to make them cohere and interrelate. Okay. Mm -hmm. What it says is there's one kind of knowledge system that frames the world as behavior from a general observer perspective, and we can call that science. Mm -hmm. Science then takes this general observer perspective and then tries to map behavior and develop ex descriptions and explanations for why behavior unfolds the way it does. And I'm suggesting that science, if we know how to listen to what it's taught us, science tells us that, hey, there was energy and then there's matter and then there's life. And then there are minded animals, and that becomes quiche for my discipline, versus cultured persons. Because those two lines between living organisms and minded animals and minded animals and cultured persons, that's what's sort of missing in our grammar. From, that's some of the things I added. Okay, So now that gives us a scientific picture of the various orders of nature. Okay? That's a view from any general observer perspective, because that's what science gives us. Okay. Mm -hmm. But you and I don't operate on it. <laughs> you know, we care about birthdays that are relevant to us. <laughs> we care about whether our headphones work or they're relevant to us. Mm -hmm. We're situated in the world. Okay. That is your unique subjective identity. Inside of Utah, we represent that. The first one is represented with what's called the tree of knowledge that maps science. Okay. It represents the thing, there's a thing called the I-quad coin in the tree, unified theory of knowledge. This is actually in the shape of an H. I won't get into the symbolism, but it's in the shape of an H. If you blur your eyes, like, okay, that's an H. That stands for your human. And if you actually turn it, it becomes an I. Mm -hmm. That's your human identity function. The human identity function refers to the unique particular psyche as an observer situated in the world, okay? Mm -hmm. So this is you as you and me as me and every other human identity that is saying, hey, I have access to my knowledge and this is how subjectively I experience and see the world, mm -hmm. okay? So this is at the very least a placeholder, more than that, but for now, we'll just call it a placeholder for the subjective experience of being in the world from the unique particular perspective of all individual psyches. Mm -hmm. okay. So that's a placeholder. And you say, well, how do I know about that? Well, how do you know about yourself? Mm -hmm. And so I'll, I'll leave it at that as a, well, one of the things the unified theory does is it takes this, it doesn't eliminate this. Most scientific perspectives say, oh, well, the only thing we can know is through this objective behavioral perspective. That, that is the language of science, okay? 
But that doesn't eliminate this view. It doesn't mean this isn't true. It just means it doesn't, the language of science doesn't speak it. We need a way to figure out the language of science relative to the language of subjectivity. And this is this gets into your kind of enlightenment gap. Oh, wait, what's the objective? And so, well, there's a scientific way to view the world and there's a subjective way to view the world. And that's part of the enlightenment gap. We haven't figured out structures to put those together coherently. And the coin and the tree of knowledge put that together. And by the way, behind me, that thing's called the tree of life. Okay. okay. And that's inside of a garden. And that's the final piece, the tree, coin, and garden. The garden refers to how we're actually going to get along and generate collective wisdom, tell stories and have values that bring us together and recognize that the planet's in a critical nightmare space. Mm -hmm. And if we don't change what we're doing, we're going to be in trouble. These are values collectively. We better behave wisely. How do we do that? Well, maybe we should start growing gardens, basically the short story. So that's the other structure in relation. So the tree, the coin, and the garden together afford a new grammar for thinking about science, subjectivity, and wisdom. Okay, this is, it's not that clear to me, I have to say, thus far. There's, I want to dig into some things. And also for people listening, I, feel, I would like to uh, maybe ask some more like direct questions. Um, sure. And if we can move away from like the coin or the tree because pe people can't see them. Oh, okay. um, yeah, so... Yeah, um, how would like let's talk about the the planet is in a critical condition we all see the world we are all unique psyches as observers in this world and we all have a subjective experience however we have a model of science that uh, says there's well we need to be able to measure things objectively in order to uh, i don't know impact behavior or change behavior or model or understand or whatever how are those two things like you're saying this is the enlightenment gap and this is very interesting how does the relationship between those two things engender this critical situation for our planet and how in crossing that enlightenment gap will that lead to a better relationship and then we'll get into the the garden and what that actually means yeah uh, yeah no and, and we should i appreciate that frame in terms of let's put some constraints on it so people can uh, understand so um i think there are a lot of things well, well why is the planet critical let's just put it mm. let's uh, let's go just there so in my basic estimation, essentially what you have with us as talking apes that can invent technology, mm -hmm. okay, we, our capacity to evolve and gain control over the environment has just outstripped any other animal on a time frame that just is not uh, in the same scale that other animals are changing. Okay, so we mm -hmm. built cumulative culture and cumulative technology, especially when we shifted into agriculture over the last 10,000 years or whatever, okay? Mm -hmm. And then built cities on the one hand, civilization happened. Then we get modern science and the industrial revolution, mm -hmm. okay? Mm -hmm. uh, and now all of a sudden what we have this capacity to do is find energy in the world and turn it into our stuff, right? <laughs> yeah. Which is great at the level of, hey, we used to be in caves and had fire. Okay, that was cool. But now we have apartments, you know, and Zoom and, and houses. <laughs> and so that's great at one level. However, our capacity to do that, of course, explodes our population and it sucks all the energy out of the world in terms of its store. And we're burning through that and both burning through the battery that it 
gives us, and it burns all of the other structures so that we're entered the Anthropocene, the human-changed macro environment. Mm-hmm. And, we, and we're not re- replenishing it, and we're not sustainable in relationships, just, and we're growing. We're, you know, our GDPs and everything economically, we're supposed to grow 3% every year. Well, that's an exponential growth on a structure that's finite. There's no way that that can be sustainable, okay? So basically that's the, in terms of, I often say, you know, kind of we're on a Titanic, you know, we're in deep trouble. Um, So that's the, that's the basic energy architecture of the structure that we find ourselves in. Now, why are we in this and what are we going to do about it? That's a huge and complicated question that we need many, many people to bring an enormous amount of resources and intellect and courage and other things, much of which is far outside my knowledge. Okay. But what I can tell you as an academic is a big deal for behaving wisely is getting your knowledge correct, mm-hmm. like understanding the world. Okay. So science afforded us a partial understanding of the world, partial mm-hmm. understanding as it currently was emerged in the Enlightenment. And essentially, what I'm saying is the knowledge they gave us gave us physics and chemistry and biology pretty nicely. But it broke at the level of psychology, the social sciences, and in particular, how to connect sciences to the humanities. And as a function of that breakdown, we built this entire institutional structure, but we don't have the wisdom, the knowledge and the wisdom to coordinate ourselves. We're we're flying blind with enormous amount of power, but not knowledge, wisdom. Mm -hmm. Part of the reason we don't have knowledge and wisdom is because our knowledge systems are inadequate and broken. So I am diagnosing a core aspect of why the knowledge systems are broken okay? and inviting an invitation, offering an invitation to say, here's how to fix this aspect of the knowledge system. If we were to fix this aspect of knowledge system collectively, would afford us a part, a piece of the puzzle that would enable us to coordinate our activity much more wisely. Okay, so the knowledge system is broken because of this enlightenment gap between matter and mind and what do we mean by scientific knowledge and how does it relate to uh, the subject or societal knowledge? And closing it requires using a different grammar, so understanding that the world is an unfolding wave of behavior and observers and reframing, organizing our knowledge systems to interrelate. Lovely. That's that's it. That's what we got. Okay, good. Let's keep going then. What does that mean if we want our knowledge systems to interrelate? Well, it means that we want to uh, sort of understand, but we get back to where we got excited about and uh, or began or was like, so when you talk about psychotherapy, right? Uh, and how do I understand? Gosh, you know, I have this anxiety about this thing or I'm really depressed about this thing or I can't get along with my spouse. I, I need to go get therapy. What's wrong with me? Okay. How do I, so, well, you are an organism and we have biological knowledge. And if you were traumatized, we know that that can impact. So should we understand this in like, it's your brain, your brain is broken. Well, or where, how does your brain relate to cognition and how does it relate to culture and how does it, what behavior? Okay. So if we're actually going to gain cumulative knowledge about those things that make consistent sense and then grow in our knowledge, we can get clear. We haven't been able to get clear about what all those terms mean. And we can get clear about all those terms mean. That's, that's 
That's what the unified theory of knowledge does. And thus it interrelates them uh, so that you can basically be like, oh, I understand what we mean by mind and behavior and cognition and consciousness and self and culture. Mm. And we can map those things so that you and I would have the same basic grammar and vocabulary. If that happened, it'd be a big shift. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Um, even just, sort of, well, I suppose, within cultures or cross-culturally. Um, it sounds, and I'm trying to like map other uh, concepts onto this. And so if I'm doing this incorrectly or if that's the wrong, the wrong thing to do, please just say. But it sounds also quite a lot like ego disillusion and rejecting the projections that we create in order to navigate through a world of uncertainty um, and a world often of pain. It seems a lot like tr stripping back this sense of individualism to form a sense of collectivism and what is my role as a single unit of a, what was it? Um, observer, of, of a collection of observers. Well, certainly, yeah, if we get into sort of what is, uh, what would be wise and what is often sort of neurotic suffering and foolishness, mm -hmm. okay? neurotic suffering, much of neurotic suffering and foolishness is the investment in the ego <laughs> and self. And we can get to Eastern traditions about this is like, I'm really attached to this. I need, oh my gosh, I need this new haircut and oh my gosh, I need this. And I really want this person to like me and, uh, and you get attached. Uh, and a big problem for folks is that negative situations hit their negative feeling system. Okay. Yeah. And then the ego doesn't like of either one of those things. Yeah. Okay. And then it tries to be act in a particular way on those negative situation, negative feelings, mm -hmm. because gripping the world, trying to grab the world based on what primate part of you feels based on what your ego yeah. narrating and the impression management persona feels and you're trying to then jam the system back into eliminate the negative situation get rid of the negative feeling okay? mm -hmm. and when you do that and you do that in the wrong way you basically are like bringing water to a grease fire okay? mm -hmm. water to a grease fire is like hey that makes sense there's a fire i want to bring but you bring water to a grease fire and it spreads it often horrible right. okay right so if you try to engage in avoidance, oh my God, I'm going to run away, blame, I'm going to blame myself, I'm going to blame you, I'm going to blame the world, or misguided control, I'm going to make sure this never happens again. Because my ego wants to, is invested in having the world to be a particular way, because mm -hmm. this is what's good for me, mm -hmm. we're going to find ourselves in all sorts of different kinds of trouble. And indeed, a lot of what I would argue we treat in psychotherapy from a lot of different perspectives is precisely this, what I call neurotic it's a neurotic loop. Bad things happen. I feel bad. I try to bring stuff to it. But the way I bring it makes bad things happen again and makes me feel worse. And so mm -hmm. there's mm -hmm. the, okay? So ego control and, and self-investment is definitely part of our trouble. Mm -hmm. Our society trained, especially the United States, the society essentially trains you to be egoic. Yeah. And the way it interprets science is like, well, there's nothing else out there. The best thing you can do is have a lot of fun and get a lot of toys. Mm. Uh, no, not. Okay. Mm -hmm. But that is the way a lot of people interpret both the, the American dream and physical science combined. It's that's deeply misguided. Well, what is the best way that people could live then? If we manage to integrate our knowledge systems and most importantly, 
integrate a knowledge system of what our existence is and how we relate to one another and then place that within a holistic understanding of science, what is a way that people could live together? Right. That's lovely. So um, Kant has a wonderful phrase, uh, Immanuel Kant, for sort of flourishing. It's happiness with the worthiness to be happy. Okay. Mm. Happiness with the worthiness to be happy. Well, what do we mean by worthiness to be happy? Well, ultimately, worthiness to be happy would be to the capacity to understand what our natures were, both individually and collectively, relate to each other and relate to the world and allow those to be met to the extent possible, know how to adjust when they're not, and come together with autonomy, come together communally with autonomy, individually, okay, in the right balance, and afford our capacity to both cope and grow such that we could do and be and become in a way that enables happiness with the worthiness to be happy. So these are the principles of that. To answer that question, of course, then, now we would have to go and now you got to talk to each individual, human identity, find their situation in relation and find what we're doing collectively and what they're doing individually and begin the of applying these kinds of principles. There's no obviously five minute answer uh, that then is then just could be rotely applied because this is a part to use a John Vervecki term. This is a participatory problem, not a procedural problem. It's the way we're going to participate with our identities, but there are principles associated with participating. Okay. That would afford us a particular kind of growth. That's quite different than what we are seeing now with the meaning and mental health crises and a bunch of other stuff. That's uh, quite problematic. If I wanted to try and boil this all down into a headline, which as a journalist, I would love to be able to do. Is this fundamentally then what we're talking about, a problem of relationship? One's relationship to oneself, one's relationship to others, one's relationship to knowledge, how we understand the relationship between things to be, I mean, quantum physics recently, what was it that the, they sort of came out and said, well, actually, it seems that things only really exist when they're in relation to one another. And so everything is just relationships. And a bunch of climate activists went, yeah, told you. <laughs> is that is that what we're talking about? Well, certainly that's a that's a great, if you want to sort of say, all right, what are some of the things that we need to fundamentally shift our grammar around? Get out of individual objects, individual particles, individual humans, and get into fields and systems mm. in relation, mm -hmm. 100%. Mm -hmm. Yes, relationship would be a great word. I have a couple of my friends uh, in, you know, sort of philosophy and these kinds of things that emphasize a relational view. In fact, there's a relational quantum mechanics view that I'm quite fond of uh, and, and relational perspectives in the world, transcending the ego, these kinds of elements, connecting uh, to nature, uh, recognizing our oneness with nature. These kinds of elements are absolutely crucial to the kinds of transformations that would be uh, central, absolutely, in my estimation. And to look back around to where we started this, then what do you think we need to see in psychotherapy would be the first thing. And then two, is it worth having some hope for the state of the world now, given that we are seeing more people seek therapy than ever before and speak really, really openly about their troubles with their, their own sort of self-image and self-relationship and with others? Sure. Um, well, I, I'm trying to, at the at the applied side, I'm basically arguing that, yeah, the core of psychotherapy, um, first and foremost, actually is about relation. 
are participating in relation and connecting to people and seeing people in relationship to their relational value, their felt sense of being seen, known, and valued in the world mm. versus social influence, which is to what extent can you move people around? Mm. Okay? And in our economy is move people around. Our hearts crave seen, known, and valued. Mm. Okay. And there are good reasons for that. And those are very different things. And we must increase seen, known, and valued much more than instrumental moving around. So that's one super key point. When we develop money and we develop the generalized power systems, we basically turned it into social influence and we lost relational value. Right. Okay. Okay. That's big. Mm. People, the currency of real relational value is absolutely. Yeah. All right. And the psychotherapy world teaches that. One of the things that we need in psychotherapy, we need to be aware of. In fact, I recently gave up my license voluntarily a year ago is because we don't want to professionalize this. We sometimes, but the general wisdom of psychotherapy is actually the wisdom for society. It's not wisdom for a cloistered therapy room with a confidential relationship that you're paying for. Okay. Okay. What is it? Well, one is this relational value. Another is recognizing what the ego is trying to do and try to grip. Okay. Buddhist, Buddha recognize and how you grip. Okay. The negative situations and negative feelings, how you do that inside and how you do that between. Mm-hmm. What what would be the kind of cure for a lot of that? Well, I believe you adopt what's called a metacognitive observer. You step outside the stream of your subjectivity so that it becomes the object of your thought. Step outside mm-hmm. and say, oh, here we are. Okay. Mm-hmm. And then the acronym that I have for that is CALM. Bring a calm metacognitive attitude. Mm-hmm. Calm. Okay. And then what does that mean? It means being curious, accepting loving, compassionate, and motivated toward valued states of being in the short and long term. Mm -hmm. If we are able to become aware, recognizing, I mean, the planet's going to do what it's going to do, and obviously there's a lot of momentum, but hopefully we can wake up and constrain some of that. I don't know. What can we do? For me, the best I can do is grow my little garden and hope you're growing yours and we'll see what it's going to have. This is a Buddhism. Bad things are going to happen. And in this case, bad things are probably going to happen pretty intensely. Okay? Mm-hmm. How do we not bring water to the grease fire? Well, if we adopt a meta attitude that's curious, accepting, loving, compassionate, and motivated toward valued states of being, those are good principles and processes. And I would argue that core of psychotherapy is fundamentally uh, elusive. You can find the essence of this in virtually all the major approaches. And this really is what the root of what is pointed to is terms of healing. You know, I agree with you, but I also, I had difficulty with that mindset as well, given you and I, we're not on the front line of the climate crisis. Um, (laughs) And it is the the cultures that actually have a lot of what you've been discussing throughout this already embedded in their wisdom and embedded in their religion and embedded in their culture. They're on the front line of the climate crisis and are going to be swept away by the ravages, essentially, of Western consumerist, capitalist, um, atheist culture. And so what, outside of cultivating one's own awareness and observational capacity and uh, valued relations and everything, I completely agree with you. Outside of doing that within oneself and within one's community, is there a way to um, map how that could 
produce different kinds of policies? Or is there a way that people can speak to decision makers or leaders or their political representatives that encourage or force this shift in those who have their hands on the levers as well? Lovely. Yeah. So um, the way I frame our current crisis, okay, sort of meta crisis, poly crisis, mm. I try to boil it down into four big domains. Okay. So one is I call the techno environmental crisis. So mm -hmm. techno environmental crisis is what we talked about before, just the leveraging of human energy and that sucks up the planet and is yeah. on a accelerating yeah. curve. It's going to tip the thing off and drop us off the cliff. Okay. Yeah. The second is there's a digital globalization crisis. Uh, that has both enormous amounts of potential, well, just so does tech in some ways, um, but a loss of disaster. And that is, hey, what's going to happen now that we're, we built technologies that interface with our complex adaptive capacity as humans? In other words, the internet, artificial intelligence, robotics, as it will get increasingly, other kinds of artificial intelligence. We're going to get a neural link and plug it in. Who knows what's going to happen? Uh, but the world is going to change fundamentally. Humans are going to change because of digital. And the digital globalization relation is a totally new and whether are we going to achieve equilibrium there? Okay. Mm. Uh, so that's the second problem. Third problem, a meaning crisis. We don't know what is true and good collectively. Okay. And then, and then that gives rise in terms of our embodied experience, the mental health crisis. Okay. We're seeing we're alone and blah, blah, blah. Uh, so the, for me, there are lots of different ways to slice this up, but the current crisis of this century uh, it can be framed as a meta crisis that has these four points. All right. I am, I'm a psychological theorist. I'm not a climate scientist. Okay. I'm not an organizational change person. I don't go to United Nations and manage political interaction and negotiation. As I said before, there are many of us that need to be brought to bear on this problem. And many people have pro expertise and knowledge structures that are far different than my own. What I can tell people that are working on the climate crisis, okay, is that our knowledge systems are broken. Our awareness of human psychology is, is flawed. It gives us enough to, so that, you know, the great tech companies can do all sorts of algorithmic manipulation of our intention. But there is ways to understand the nature of human nature, what it needs, and we can do much better in the kinds of educational systems that we organize our knowledge around. That's part of the problem. It's not the solution to the problem. It's part of the problem, okay? Mm -hmm. And part of the solution to the problem, we need to network together the seers that have good solutions across these different dimensions and figure out a, somehow a transformation so we turn the Titanic before it hits too many of these icebergs. And mm. time will tell. Mm. Time will tell. Fingers, fingers and toes and everything crossed. Greg, thank you so much for your time. This has been very, very interesting. My final question, of course, is who would you like to platform? Uh, I'll platform Zach Stein. Uh, he's an educational philosopher and developmental psychologist. Um, he's written a book, uh, Education in a Time Between Worlds. Um, it's a great uh, articulation. His argument in terms of the core of planet crisis is that really it is an educational crisis. And what he means by that is we've lost a sort of the proper teacherly authority to make the bridge between past generations and current into future generations. So we can cultivate the wisdom of the past, build inside of individuals what's necessary to then grow and then adjust uh, to the tragic elements uh, that are coming and how to have the right psychological, philosophical, spiritual uh, alignment with that. And I think he would be somebody uh, who you might really enjoy talking. 
Wonderful. Thank you so much. I'll reach out to him. It's funny as you're just saying that there. It, um, everybody thinks that the crisis is through the lens of their own field, of course. Like me as a journalist, I'm like, wow, it's a, it's a crisis of storytelling. It's a crisis of imagination, um, crisis of creativity. Um, I just wonder if there is a way in this interrelation of knowledge systems, once you begin to weave things together, you get a, a different picture, a more holistic picture. And it seems increasingly obvious that it is only in allowing for relationships to reveal themselves and create something that is not by our own creation, actually, but is a byproduct of the the interplay of things that we perhaps have created. That is what will reveal the... Yeah. The solution. We need to create, try to recognize, to use Zach's term, we're going through a time between worlds. Hmm. Somehow we need to cultivate relations and insights and practices that give rise to a new ecology that transforms hmm. structure and generates a collective wisdom and enables a much more sustainable hmm. in the world. And, and that's going to come from all sorts of different perspectives. And if they can be synergized, hmm. and then we may have a shot on this thing. <laughs> Greg, thank you so much. Happy, happy to be here. Thanks so much, Greg. If you want to learn more about Greg's work, I've put links to everything over on planetcritical.com where you can subscribe to support this podcast and read the weekly essays inspired by each interview. If you liked this episode, leave a review and share it far and wide. If you loved it, support the project with a paid subscription at planetcritical.com. As always, thank you to the Planet Critical community who support the show and make all of this work possible. Thank you all for listening. See you next week.